Psalm 63, um, and uh, let's read all, all 11 verses together, and then, then we'll jump into our study. O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with morrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. And I remember thee upon my bed and meditate thee on thee in the night watches, because thou hast been my help. Therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. My soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. It shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. We're going to learn tonight how to pray through spiritual drought. David was in the same situation he was in when we preached two weeks ago. Um, he had already been crowned king. He had, he had established Jerusalem as the capital. He had moved the ark of God to Jerusalem. Everything was going great. They were, they, they, they were experiencing relative peace in the country. And then his rebellious and bitter son named Absalom formed a strategic revolt against him. He persuaded thousands of people to turn their backs on his dad and to follow him. And, and this was so severe that it caused David and some of his most loyal servants to have to flee Jerusalem. And David found himself escaping to a very familiar territory, the desert, the wilderness. It was familiar because for years after David whipped up on Goliath and King Saul, his father-in-law, got upset and jealous about it, King Saul ran him out. And he had to run from King Saul and he went from cave to cave, desert to desert. So this was familiar terrain to, to, to David. The, the desert in that day, it was a lot like it is in our day. It was a lonely place. It was a, it was a dangerous place. It was an open space filled with virtually nothing but wild animals and wild criminals. Well, David was neither one of those. But he still found himself having to endure the barrenness of the desert anyway. And this is where he writes Psalm 63. Look at verse 1 again. O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. Watch this. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. So, so David's physical reality of being in a dry desert with no water to quench his thirst was also the reality of his soul. One man said this, what his eyes saw and his parched throat felt, his spirit knew well. He was experiencing a spiritual drought, not just a physical one. A spiritual one. And then, and then verse 2 kind of implies the cause of his spiritual drought. Look at verse 2. To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Now, now follow along with me, because if you go back and track the story of when David got ran out of Jerusalem by his son Absalom, you'll find that just, just after fleeing Jerusalem, he got chased down by two members of the priestly tribe, Zadok and Abathar. And they had the ark of God with them. Somehow, I don't know how, but somehow they, they safely managed to get the ark out of Jerusalem. Now the ark what was, the, was the symbol of God's manifest presence. And so you would think when they got the, caught up to David and said, hey, we got the ark for you. We got the ark. I know you got to leave, but at least take the ark with you. You would think David said, oh, thank you guys. Man, I, 
This is what I needed to survive. But you know what he told them? He told them to send it back. You know why he told them to send it back? Because he knew. He knew that, that, that the ark was not his to leverage with his power and with his influence. The ark was a sacred piece of furniture and he knew Israel's history up to that point. First Samuel 4, they tried to manipulate the ark, use it to their advantage as kind of a lucky rabbit's foot. And what did God do? He killed them. And then and a couple chapters later, a couple of them tried to look inside of the ark. What did God do? He killed them. David said, I'm not doing that. I'm already in a dangerous enough situation. I'm not going to do that. Now imagine how hard that must have been. Because the very thing David said he longed for, he had to, he had to watch go away from him now. He turned it down and, and he saw not just the backs of Zadok and Abathar. He, he saw the ark of God, the presence of God flee from him. And he said this, I'm no longer in the sanctuary. Verse 2. This is the cause of a spiritual drought. I no longer in the midst of my covenant community. Whereas he could go to, 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 to a sanctuary to publicly worship God. Now he didn't have that community. And so this was the cause of him fearing, feeling spiritually barren and dry and, and, and experiencing this drought. Now, now, I say that because I, I want us to catch the relevance of this for our own life. Every soul, watch here. Every soul that walks with God for any stretch of time experiences a drought at some point. Are you with me? I'm talking about times in which every spiritual discipline is hard. Times in which joy seems forced. And passion seems unnatural. And nothing you do spiritually seems real. You're just spiritually dry. Now let me be clear, this doesn't mean that you're lost. It doesn't mean that, that God has abandoned you or taken away your salvation. It has nothing to do with your eternal relationship with God. It has more to do with your daily fellowship with God. See, there have been days in my 14 years of marriage so far where I have felt very closely connected to my wife in fellowship, not just in relationship. Our communication was great. Our, our time together was, was regular and meaningful. We were just on the same page there's also been times when there was just this nonverbal distance. We were just kind of in this, I don't know, renting the same house, basically. We were in and out, passing each other. We talked, but there was no intimacy in our conversation. We were just unattached, maybe due to the busyness of life. And I'll just be honest with you. There have been times in our marriage where we just flat out irritated each other. I don't know how I could irritate her. I have no idea. That's always confused me. It is a mystery. One of the great mysteries. Here's the, here's the truth. We never cease to be a married couple. Our relationship status never changed, but our fellowship with one another was dry. It was barren. It was experiencing a drought. The same thing happens with our fellowship with the Lord. So I solicited some help on Facebook, got a great response earlier this week. I wanted some people to help me with, with what were some indicators in their life of experiencing a spiritual drought, the most common response was this, a loss of desire or appetite for daily Bible reading and, and daily prayer and church attendance and any church-related activity. That was the most common response. Another response was an insensitivity to sin and the Holy Spirit. Someone even wrote a delight in sin, a lack of conviction over sin. Several wrote a no-care, no-bother attitude. No drive, no vision, no spiritual enthusiasm, indifference, just an overall sense of apathy. 
Some admitted it affects their relationships. That's an indicator when they become overly sensitive or easily offended or embittered towards others, critical of others, fault finding in their spirit. Some just wrote words, words like this, discontent, overwhelmed, empty, withdrawn, disconnected, bleak, irritable, miserable, hard, mechanical. Now, I don't know if any of these are ringing a bell or resonating with you, but every one of us would be wise to know the indicators in our life for when we're experiencing a spiritual drought. Because these indicators are like that check engine light in your car. They're like the change, the oil indicator, the low fuel indicator. By the way, don't you think that that low fuel indicator always comes on way too early? My wife gets all panicked about it when she sees that low fuel. I'm like, babe, we got like 60 miles. It's always on too early. You know why they put those indicators on there? So that we will pay attention to them and give our engines maintenance before they break down. Fill up our tanks with gas before we run out with fuel. The indicators of spiritual drought and why it's so important for you to be able to know what what these indicators are in your life is they're there to encourage you to give maintenance to your soul before a spiritual breakdown, before a mental breakdown, before an emotional breakdown occurs. Listen, you don't have to let your spiritual life get to a crisis point before you start managing it, before you wake up. There are things that the Holy Spirit through preaching and through Bible reading and through circumstances and otherwise, there there are some things that that are like these check engine lights in your soul. Pay attention to those. Don't ignore those. Don't resist those. Don't put those aside. Fill your tank up with gas when the light comes on or you will run out. David's going to teach us what, what we should do when we see these indicators of spiritual drought start to pop up in our soul. Really, he's going to teach us how to pray when we don't feel like praying. And I want you to catch this. Before we get into the text, his prayer involves a recommitment to his spiritual responsibilities in five areas. Seeking God, praising God, meditating on God, clinging to God and resting in God, which shows us this. When we're spiritually dry, we have to we have to take it up ourselves to to rediscover and recommit ourselves to our spiritual responsibilities. When you experience a spiritual drought, it's not God's fault. He never moves, never goes anywhere. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. He says, I am God. I change not. James even says, draw nigh to God. Then he'll draw nigh to you. This relationship, it's two ways. And so when we move away from God or something in our life causes us to feel barren or dry or distant from God, we don't just look up to God and say, where are you, God? He's right where you left him. He's in the same place and he'll be in the same place tomorrow. It's up to us to say, "Okay, do I need to recommit myself to my relationship with my God? Do I need to rediscover some responsibilities that I've let slip? And over time, my engine has just broken down. Let's take a look at those tonight. Verse 1 and 2 teach us this, that David was committed to perpetual seeking. Perpetual seeking. Look at the first line of verse 1. Oh God, thou art my God. Now, this is a basic point, but essential. Don't miss this. David was focused on seeking God personally. 
Okay, David made God the center of his prayer, God the center of his pursuit. And it's interesting that David used the word Elohim to describe God. That's the general name of God. That's the first name that is mentioned when when God is introduced in the Bible in Genesis 1. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. But that is just a general term overall for God. But he, in the second use of the word God, oh God, thou art my God, he gets more specific. In the Hebrew, he just uses the word El. Now, what is that about? So, so in essence, he's saying this, oh Elohim, thou art my El. What is El? What, what is that all about? Well, well, that is giving more specific reference to a, to a specific attribute of God. So in other words, he's saying, oh Elohim, thou art my strength. El is is signifying the attribute of God's strength and power to deliver. And so what David is is doing is he's making this personal. He's addressing God for who he wants God to be in his personal situation. And that's a good habit for us to get into when we're praying. Don't just address God generally. Know the attributes well enough of God to be able to focus on a singular attribute that applies to your personal situation. Maybe it would be like David. Maybe you need to address God in your prayer tomorrow morning as Elohim El. God, you are my strength because you do feel weak. That is your situation. Maybe you need to address God as your refuge because you feel vulnerable or your shield because you feel attacked or your provider because you're in need or, or your shepherd because you need guidance or your friend because you need somebody to listen or your father because you need comfort. Find an attribute of God that applies to the situation you're in. And talk to God like you know him. Don't give him a general term. Talk to him like you know him. Seeking God in prayer involves more than just saying his name generally. you got to know him. And then David said, early will I seek thee. Early will I seek thee. That word early in the Hebrew describes the dawn of the day. Literally the beginning of the day. And I understand, listen, that God can be sought and found at any time of the day. But I'm convinced that those who are really earnest about their relationship with God start the day early by focusing on their relationship with him. Are you listening to me? The main excuse I've heard for not praying and reading people, reading the Bible in the morning is this. I'm not a morning person. The main excuse. Well, join the club. I'm not a morning person either. I've read books, listened to podcasts on how to become one, and they're all a lie. I'm not a morning person, but I still get out of bed, Dad. I'm not a morning person, but I still get up and shower. I'm not a morning person, but I still brush my teeth. And I still shave. And I still get my clothes on. And I take my son to school, and I get him ready for school. I still go to work. I still fulfill my response. You know what the point is? Not being a morning person is not allowed to be an excuse in the real world. You still get up and you still go to work. You're not a morning person, but you look at Facebook. You're not a morning person, but you're texting. Not a morning person, but you look at your email. If you really value something, you'll be focused enough in the morning to seek it. So I'm not, I'm not going to let the morning person know I'm better if I just read before, before I go to bed. Here's the, problem with, here's the problem with that. Your night schedule is very unpredictable. Like you're really tired at the end of some days and you have a lot of energy at some days. But a lot of times when you have a lot of energy, you're watching TV. Kids are running around. Let's just be more honest. 
If we can get up five minutes earlier tomorrow than we normally do, we're going to have a better chance at seeking God in the morning than we would if we say, I'm going to do it at night. You can seek God at any time. In fact, you should pray without ceasing, by the way. That should be the rhythm of your life. But I'm talking about an intentional seeking of God should be early. It should be early. That should be your custom. David continues to pray through a spiritual drought. So, so, so he commits to perpetual seeking. But let, let's go on to verse 3 through 5. He, he commits to perpetual praising. Look at verse 3. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. David said this. God's love, this is so interesting. He says it was better than life. Now follow me here. I want you to ponder in your mind for a moment. What is there truly that is better than life? I thought about this. Let's just say you're enjoying your favorite meal. I'm going to really do this up. It's cooked to perfection. It's served with elegance. Are you thinking about what that meal is? Your, your palate savors every bite. Your taste buds cry with delight. Then suddenly the last bite goes down wrong and becomes an obstruction in your throat. You're choking. In an instant, that meal means nothing to you. You know what means everything to you? Life. Breath. Or say you're, you're driving with your family on a dream vacation. Let's make it the mountains. All points of the compass offer awe-inspiring natural wonders. Your family members stare in wide-eyed astonishment. You guys don't look impressed at all. Fresh winds of joy and wonder blow through your soul as you round the bend on a narrow highway clinging to the side of a naked cliff of unfathomable proportions. You hear a loud explosion and you feel the car suddenly pull to the outside lane with amazing force. In an instant, your dream vacation means nothing. Regaining the control of your car and living another second means everything. Imagine watching your son Score the winning touchdown in the state championship football game as time expires on the clock. And as a proud parent, you are filled with overwhelming gladness and joy. But you see as he crosses the goal line that the middle linebacker from the other team rips him down onto the turf and his head hits hard. And all his teammates are, are celebrating the state championship, but he's lying motionless in the end zone. And as you see the stretcher, rushed out there and the ambulance coming on the sidelines. Football means nothing. Touchdowns mean nothing. Championships mean nothing. Life means everything. You with me? What is there better than life? David said there was something. You know what he said it was? God's love. That, that, that's what his conviction was. God's loving kindness is better than my next breath. And he could say that with like credibility. He didn't know if he was going to be able to take a next breath. His own son and thousands of his son's soldiers were after him. But he said, God's love never stops. It means more to me than water in a desert, more than breath to a suffocating man, more than a state championship to a teenage boy. And it's God's love that's the object of his praise because he's so overwhelmed with God's love. Even in the midst of a dry, barren desert, he says, my lips shall praise thee because a lot of things in my life have been ripped away. But one thing that has never changed is that my heavenly father loves me. You might lose somebody you love, but your heavenly father still loves you. 
You might lose your health, but your heavenly father still loves you. You might get injured on the job and not be able to go back for a long time, but your heavenly father loves you. Your marriage might be crumbling because your spouse doesn't love you, but your heavenly father loves you. That never changes. That never stops. And so as committed as he is to loving us, we ought to be as committed to praising him for it. Yeah, the desert didn't change his praise. In fact, look how committed he was to it in verse 4. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. He's like, your, your, your love is as good or better to me than my next breath, so I'm going to spend every breath I have praising you for it. Not just while I'm in Jerusalem, surrounded by God's people, in God's house, next to the ark of God. I'm going to do it out in the middle of nowhere when I'm running for my life. And notice that his expression of praise wasn't just with his lips. How else did he, what, what, how else did he express his praise? Look at verse 4. Say it out loud, somebody. The end of verse 4. His hands. Now this will rock the Baptist doctor. A lot of conservative Baptists, respectfully I say this, are very uncomfortable with lifting their hands. Maybe it's because it's been taken to an extreme of emotionalism and drawn attention to the one worshiping and not the one being worshipped. I don't know. But a lot of people are uncomfortable with that expression of worship. May I say that lifting your hands in God's house, in corporate worship or in private is as biblical as singing or praying or saying amen or clapping your hands. And so if you see somebody lifting their hands in worship, whether it's on this platform or it's in the chair in front of you, don't look at them like they're strange. I'm not saying you have to express your praise in that way, though you might try it sometime. But don't look at people funny for that. That is biblical. It's as biblical as any other expression of praise. Look at verse 5. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. So, so David committed himself to perpetual praise and eventually he felt satisfied. I'm not sure he felt satisfied when he started praising. But once he started praising, he got to the point where he could say, you know what? My soul is satisfied as my belly is when I have a good meal. Morrow and fatness. That's dealing literally with the physical satisfaction you would, you would have from your favorite home-cooked meal. We've already talked about food enough. I'll move on. But you know how that feels. As long as you don't overeat, but you get, you get to eat your favorite food, man, it's awesome. And notice that David said his soul was satisfied, but his circumstances never changed. He didn't say, oh man, I finally, my son has given up on chasing me. Now my soul is satisfied. Finally, I got some water for my, for my throat and I got some water for my soul. Now I can be, oh, finally, I got back in Jerusalem. I'm in my comfortable bed again. I'm around my family again. I'm around my servants again. I'm around my friends again. I'm the king again. Now my soul, no, no, no. He was satisfied when his circumstances were, were all the same. His son was still a punk kid. He still lost his throne. He was still in the desert. He chose to praise anyway, which tells me this. A lot of times in spiritual drought, you're going to have to act your way to the feeling, right? If you, if you wait to feel like praising, to praise, good luck with you. You're probably not going to praise very often, especially in the midst of a spiritual drought. But the key to getting out of a spiritual drought is praising when you don't feel like it. 
Singing when you don't feel like it. Lifting your hands when you don't feel like it. Having a thankful spirit when you don't feel like it. By the way, we would do well to keep praising God no matter how the election turns out. Lift your hands anyway when you come to church on Sunday. Help me. Whether it turns out in your favor or not in your favor, none of that changes your praise. Our praise is to God. Number three, notice perpetual meditating. We got to recommit ourselves to this. Look at verse six. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. I found it interesting that one person that responded on Facebook about the indicator of their spiritual drought said that they struggle. They, this is an indicator. They know they're spiritually barren whenever they don't have restful and restorative sleep. I think David struggled with the same thing because apparently he woke up three times a night. He said, I meditate on the Lord in the watches of the night. Did you know the Hebrews divided the night hours into three watches? From sunset to 10 o'clock. Watch number two, 10 o'clock to two o'clock. Watch number three, two o'clock to sunrise. Hey, they didn't have alarm clocks to wake themselves up every night. Watch. David didn't have an iPhone. And so it means David must have been awakened by his own thoughts. By his own worries. By his own anxieties. You ever been awakened in the middle of the night like that? You don't need an alarm clock. You got the alarm clock of worry. And the alarm clock of stress. The alarm clock of a crying hungry baby. Every time David was awakened, even up to three times a night, he chose to meditate on God. Now, now don't miss the significance of this, because every time I'm awakened by my worries, I want to think about my worries. And my anxieties and my desert. But David chose to shift his thoughts and meditate on God. Watch what author John Kitchen said. Whenever David awakened in the night, regardless of the time, he disciplined himself to think upon God. When worry took his mind and body hostage, he dragged his thoughts back to God. When anxiety pumped up his adrenaline and kept his body from sleep, David diluted it with massive doses of God thoughts. I love that. That's hard, though. That's hard. Meditation is hard for us in 2020 because we live in a, in a noisy, uh, busy culture that makes sitting still, saying nothing, and thinking deeply on purpose incredibly hard. So I began to study, what does it mean to meditate? I mean, biblically, what does it mean to meditate? Well, the word itself comes from a verb meaning to mutter, to growl, <laughs> or groan. It actually has the sense of repeating the same thing over and over under your breath. Mulling it over in your mind. It's talking to yourself about what you've made your mind to think upon. Meditation is then the dissection of a thought, someone said. Taking it apart, examining its parts, pondering its meaning, wringing every significance from it like you wring water out of a towel. Now put those things together. You got talking and thinking. That makes up meditation. It's literally when you choose your thoughts and then you talk to yourself about your thoughts and then you wring out every ounce of life from your thoughts as long as they are God thoughts. That's the way to fill your soul when it's empty. Water your, your heart when it's dry. Awaken your mind when it's dull and indifferent. 
Listen, this meditation allowed David to, to feel safe and secure and confident in God. He, he, he said at the end of verse number six, that, 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 or, or in verse seven rather, he said, God has been my help. As he began to meditate on God as his helper, he says, man, I, I, I am resting beneath the shadow of my God's wings. Can I, can I ask you a question? Do you have a time for meditation built into your daily devotional routine? When you pray, do you ever stop and sit still for a few minutes just to think? Now, that doesn't mean you sit still and your mind goes to neutral. It means you pick a thought about God or from his word that you just read and you start talking to yourself about it under your breath over and over. And you think deeply enough about it to wring every ounce of life out of it. Or do you just look at your prayer list or pray for a few things, get your devotional book out, read it, and boom, you're going out your day. Is there ever, I, I want to challenge you, don't start with, with big lengths of time, but I want to challenge you to get, your, get your, your phone out, get your stopwatch out on your phone, whatever you use to keep time. And I, I want you to push on there two minutes. That's it. When you pray tomorrow morning, you have your quiet time early in the morning. When you wake up, you have your quiet time with God. I want you to push two minutes at some point in that time where all you do is you think about one thought of God. Something you read in the Bible or an attribute of God that you want to think about for two minutes and you just think about how that applies to your life right now. You think about how that might apply to your life in, the, in that particular day and ring out every ounce you can in 120 seconds. And I want you to do that until next Wednesday. Two minutes a day, that's it. That, that, that's, what, 14 minutes total by the time we meet again next week? And then next week, I want you to take it to three minutes. And I want you to get to like five minutes, at least a day, where you do nothing but meditate. Where you take one thought and you talk to yourself about it over and over and over. For, just, just try that. Try it. And, and see what that does for your mind. It's amazing. It's amazing. Here's, here's the fourth thing. David was committed to perpetual clinging. Look to verse 8. I love this thought. Study with me. My soul, David said, followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholdeth me. Oh, this is awesome. When, when David says, my soul falleth hard after thee, it, it's the idea of chasing something down and then clinging to it. Are you with me? I feel like y'all are struggling to be with me. Are you with me? Okay, all right, good. So, so the, the same Hebrew phrase or word was used. The translator translated in the book of Ruth as the word clean or clave. And here's what happened. Here's what happened. A, 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 a group, of, a family, by the, with, with the, um, help me with the name of, of uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech. He and, and Ruth and their two sons, Malon and Chilion left Bethlehem, Judah, went to Moab because there was a famine in Bethlehem, Judah. When they got to Moab, followed this, the two sons met two girls, Ruth and Orpah. And, 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 and by the time that they were married and they lived a, a couple years, here's what happened. Uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Elimelech died. And I didn't write this down on my notes. I'm just, I'm just recalling it. I preached it too long ago. And then um, Malon and Chilion died. So there was like three funerals in a matter of months. And now there's three widows, three widows. Naomi said, I'm not staying in Moab, a foreign land, 
without a husband. That's dangerous. I'm going back to Bethlehem, Judah. And she said, girls, you stay here. This is your homeland. You don't want to go back to Bethlehem, Judah as foreign women. So you, you stay here as Moabitess women. Well, Orpah gave her, her mother-in-law a kiss on the cheek and said, okay, see ya. But Ruth chased down Naomi and the Bible says clave unto her. Like wouldn't let go. And said, I am coming with you. And said this just real poetic uh, uh, committal language that was awesome. And, and it was the same exact phrase here in the Hebrew. In other words, Ruth said, I'm following hard after you. I'm committed to you. I'm clinging unto you. Now, now this, is, this is David say, saying, God, I'm following hard after you. I'm not letting go. A lot of things I've had to let go of in the last 24, 48 hours. But God, I'm not letting go of you. Now, now we have to understand what this does mean and what it doesn't mean. Okay, watch this. It doesn't mean that the security of your walk with God is in your own hands. Okay, that rests completely in God's hands. That's why David said, thy right hand upholdeth me. God's arms literally are under us like you hold a baby. That's great assurance, by the way. That's incredible. But his keeping and holding on to you, watch this, does not absolve you from your commitment to hold on to him. Now think about this. Why would a person continue to pursue one that they've already found? Spiritually speaking, we've already found God. He holds on to us with an eternal grip. He will never let go. Why do we need to cling on to him? Why do we need to follow hard after him in that way? Here's why. Because God wants, more, wants to be more for you than just a ticket to heaven. God wants a close, intimate relationship with you. And that kind of relationship doesn't happen unless there is a two-way pursuit. Unless both parties are following hard after each other. Hey, that's when my marriage is sweet, man. Are you with me, guys? Ladies, when both Jenny and I are prioritizing each other. Hey, when we're managing our energy appropriately during our days and during the rhythm of our weeks so that while we're giving our energy to our son and to our ministry and to our house renovation and to our ministry staff, we still have energy left over for one another. It's when we follow so hard after everything else in our life to the expense of following hard after each other is when we start to experience a dry time, a drought in our marriage. And our fellowship with God is the same way. If you find yourself in a spiritual drought, it's probably because at some point you started following hard after something other than him. God never stops following hard after us. His right hand is always clinging to us. We just sometimes let go of him. And so as you pray through your spiritual drought, you've got to examine, what am I clinging the hardest to right now in my life? Is it my daily relationship with God? Or is it something other than him? Yeah, here's the last thing David committed to, perpetual resting. Verse 9 and 11 don't seem to go with the theme of this psalm, but they do. Look. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. This is brutal. They shall be a portion for foxes. Like they're, they're going to be dog food. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of him that speak lies shall be stopped. He was saying that of his own son. 
He's like, he's lying. He has started this revolt against me, these conspiracies against me, and his mouth will be stopped. Now, here's the truth. In the midst of all of David's seeking and all of his praising and meditating and cleaning, he still had some very real enemies who were after his very life. It's not that his praying through caused his circumstance or his environments to change or his enemies' pursuits to lessen. But David, through his prayer, watch, had found a restful place in regards to his enemies, in regards to his circumstances. He had come to a place where his soul could truly rest in God dealing with his enemies. Here's what David knew at this point. Oh, don't miss this. His enemies were not under his control. They were under God's control. But because David committed to what he could control, He became restful in the areas that he couldn't control. Can I tell you what you can control? How you seek God. How you praise God. Your meditation on God. Your clinging to God. That is never outside of your control. If David can control those things in the middle of a desert, physical desert, you can control those too. And if you'll take care of those spiritual things that you can control, you'll find yourself restful in the areas of life that you can't control. Hey, there might be some things or or some people or some situations that, that have made you feel like you're in a barren desert all by yourself, just like David. And in a lot of regards, you couldn't control that and you still, still can't control those things. But you can rest in, in God's control of those things as you commit to the things that you have power to control. Maybe you noticed a word. i got to hasten to a close. You noticed a word that, keep your Bible open for a second, that, that I included in every one of my main points. It was the word perpetual. Perpetual is a word that, that, that suggests continuation. I did that intentionally because here's what David's prayer exemplifies for us. His prayer shows us a continual cycle of praying through spiritual drought. It's not a one-time prayer. It's not going to my closet or come to an altar at church. Pray, God, would you forgive me? And would you, would you, would, would you help me? My, my soul thirsteth for the yada, yada, yada. Get up and everything changes. It's a perpetual rhythm. It's a perpetual prayer. It's a prayer life. Not a prayer time. Look at 63 verse 1. Let me show you this. This is the last thing I promise I'll have you study. So hang in there. Oh God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee, my soul thirsteth for thee. Don't miss it. This is really good. We start our prayer spiritually thirsty, right? We're dry. But there's this desire, this thirst. And so we pray through. We seek and and we praise and we meditate until we get to a place of satisfaction. Look at verse 5. He's thirsty, but look at verse 5. My soul shall be satisfied. So you go from thirst to satisfaction as you commit to praying through your desert. But if we refuse, watch here, to be contented with just a taste of God and we press on in prayer, here's what's going to happen. The desire for God will truly return, but it will have grown in intensity. Look at verse 8. My soul followeth hard after thee. I'm clinging to you. So watch what David did here. It's a perpetual cycle. Here's what he shows us. There's a desire. Then there's a seeking. Then there's a satisfaction. Then there's increased desire. Then there's more seeking and more satisfaction. And then there's more desire. 
and more seeking and more desire, and it never ends, which tells me that if you ever get to a spiritually dry place, it's because at some point you stop seeking. One of these things is not perpetual any longer. God hasn't gone anywhere. He hasn't stopped being God. He loves you. In Revelation, he says, man, I, I've made a place for you, man. Just, just come in and sup with me. Man, I want to talk with you every day. I want to put your tears in a bottle. You can never cry too much for me. Nothing's too small. Nothing's too big. Every day, cast your care upon me because I care for you. If I can feed the sparrow, if I can clothe the lily, I can take good care of you. But yet we stop praying. God hasn't stopped. Perpetual, perpetual, perpetual. Is there anything of these commitments, spiritual responsibilities that you have stopped? Then you are well on your way if you're not already there to a spiritual drought. And it doesn't happen overnight. And by the way, you can still come to church. You, you can still preach behind a pulpit and be crazy, crazy spiritually dry. There's nothing that this pulpit protects in terms of your spiritual relationship with God. I have, found, I have found already that if I'm not careful, Dad, I will hide behind this pulpit. And it's easy to do. It's easy to look spiritual and sound spiritual and tell you to be spiritual and me be spiritually dry. You know how I can get there as a pastor? Because I ignored the indicating lights. The Holy Spirit was kind on the dashboard of my soul to flash the lights. But I just wrote the sermon. I prayed the prayer. I made the visit. I encouraged the saint. I preached the sermon. I led the choir. But that doesn't replace meditation. And it doesn't replace private praise. And it doesn't replace perpetual seeking on my own. Are you with me? There's one thing cooking up food for you three times a week, but I need to eat my own. I'm just kind of speaking out loud now from my heart, but, but I just want you to know I'm in the same boat. I have to be careful or else a spiritual drought is right around the corner for me. So if you found yourself there, let's just take a few minutes tonight to pray, recalibrate a little bit, recommit a little bit to these spiritual responsibilities. Here's the Psalm 63 prayer. Seek God, praise God, meditate on God, cling to God, rest in God. We're going to make a journal at the end of this series. And, and we don't have time to break down all of us just to review, but you'll, you'll, you'll have a detailed version of this Psalm 63 prayer. So when you find yourself dry, you can open up that journal. And say, you know what, I'm going to pray through Psalm 63 every day this week because it's like water in my soul. Stand to your feet. Let's find the altar.